From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Kenneth Braithwaite's officially the 77th Navy Secretary. The Senate confirmed him by voice vote Thursday. Military.com reports Braithwaite is a Naval Academy graduate who served in the Navy and Reserves for 27 years. He retired in 2011 as Vice Chief of Information with the rank of Rear Admiral. John Ratcliffe is in as Director of National Intelligence. The Senate confirmed him Thursday too, but his vote was close, 49 to 44. Federal Times reports he's the first permanent DNI since Dan Coats left the job last summer. Federal employees make about 27% less than their peers in the private sector. That data coming from work by the Office of Personnel Management and the Bureau of Labor Statistics. NextGov reports the new Salary Council report doesn't include recommendations for new locality pay areas. The Government Accountability Office says it's found $429 billion in savings and cost avoidance through its reports on fragmentation, overlap, and duplication in the federal government. The 10th annual list has 168 new action items. Jessica lucas Judy's Director of Strategic Issues at GAO. Jessica, welcome back. What's the main takeaway? Is there a broad theme in what is in this year's report on fragmentation, overlap, and duplication? So this is our 10th annual report in this series on fragmentation, overlap, and duplication, and ways that the federal government could address those issues and also potentially save some money. Um, so this year's report, as you said, identifies 168 new actions that Congress or executive agencies could take. Um, and then we also go back and we revisit the 900 plus actions from our first nine reports and talk about um, things that have been done so far um, and the $429 billion in savings that's resulted from, from addressing just a few of those. And then in addition, we talk about the areas and the actions that are still open and the potential for tens of billions of dollars more savings that could be addressed. So it's a lot of information that's packed into a relatively short report. I'm struck every year when this comes out at the timeliness of some of the issues that you point out. Just included in this year's list, uh, you know, here we get this uh, the, toward the end of May. It's tax season, and you point out the IRS could save billions of dollars by uh, improving efforts to prevent identity th uh, theft, refund fraud, um, Navy acquisition practices for ships as the new the contracts for the new frigate are let, um, health and human services, pandemic type responses. Um, what's the, do you go hunting for these kinds of things or do they just present themselves by the sheer volume of work the GAO does? Uh, well, every year we go back over all of the reports that we've issued from the prior year and we look for recommendations that we've made that address uh, fragmentation, overlap, or duplication, or uh, recommendations that have potential cost savings. And um, we put all those together into, into a report. Um, and then we also look at our cross-cutting work, like our, our work on the high-risk list, um, as well as um, letters that the Comptroller General sends to um, many of the major agencies on their priority open recommendations. We put all of that together um, into, into the report. I joked a little bit before we went on the air that this report made me feel old because I covered the first one 10 years ago. What I think is important about that, though, is 
as I covered the first two or three of these, Jessica, I don't recall that agencies were closing as many of these items as you cite in this year's work. You write 79% of the actions GAO identified from 2011 to 2019 have been partially or fully addressed. Do you think the fact that you continued this after the original three-year intent makes agencies say, oh, they're going to take this seriously, they're going to come back and look, and we should pay attention to what they're writing? Yeah, we do. Um, you, we, we did have to cover uh, under the mandate. We had to cover the entire federal government within those first three years. Um, but the mandate does recur. And so GAO is required every year to identify, continue to identify fragmentation, overlap, or duplication. Um, and so, yeah, we do follow up with the agencies. We're required under government auditing standards to follow up with them at least once every 12 months, but typically we do it more often than that. And then I mentioned also our high risk uh, list and our um, uh, priority recommendation letters. Um, so we touch base with the agency quite frequently and uh, and we do they know that we report on the status each year and so they're they're looking for these updates is there an overall trend line or an arc that you see by looking at the 10-year results is the government headed in a particular area a direction overall or headed in a particular direction in certain areas or whatever that a, a line that you can draw as a result of the work that you've done over the last decade jessica well, a lot of the financial savings that we've seen have come in the defense area. You know, I mentioned there were $429 billion of savings overall. Um, defense was the biggest area. And one of one example I can give you from that um, was just by making some improvements in how it acquires weapon systems. The federal government has saved about $180 billion. Another big area of savings has been in health care. Um, and again, that makes sense. You know, these are big programs, big spending areas. And so there's a lot of uh, potential for, for savings there. Um, so the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services have made changes to how they grant waivers to states for doing demonstration programs under Medicaid. And that has resulted in, from just a few states, resulted in about $64 billion in savings. And we think that there's tens of billions of savings more that could be had. But the benefits that we're seeing aren't just financial. We see them in a lot of other areas as well. So, for example, in uh, rental housing assistance, um, the federal agencies have reduced fragmentation and uh, they better work together with their federal partners as well as state and local partners in helping to um, design programs and implement programs to make housing more affordable. Another area that we've seen improvement, um, again, in the healthcare area has to do with how uh, the Departments of Defense and Veterans Affairs are working together and um, better integrating their case management system to manage healthcare programs. And then um, one other example I can give you is, uh, you mentioned IRS. Um, so Congress reduced the threshold for reporting that's required for electronic reporting for tax information for um, certain corporations and partnerships. And this will not only make more information available electronically to IRS, which helps to cut down on their costs and the amount of time that they need to, to get to that information, um, but then it also should cut down on the number of compliant taxpayers who are selected for audit. Jessica, a lot of information in this. I appreciate you coming on to talk about it. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Up next, the security of the cyber supply chain. Straight ahead on Government Matters, industry's role in getting the supply chain secure. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
This Industry Matters segment is brought to you by BDO. The coronavirus continues to shift priorities in Congress and limit that body's ability to carry out normal work. A meeting to discuss findings of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission that Congress scheduled for March is still on hold. The Armed Services Committees keep pushing back work on the 2021 National Defense Authorization Act and the security of technology supply chains could be at risk. Catherine Gronberg is vice president at Forescout. Catherine, thanks for coming on the program. The Cyberspace Solarium Commission used supply chain 47 times in its final report. What does that say to you about how concerned this group of experts is about the government's supply chain security wise? Thanks for having me on, Francis. It's great to see you. Um, yes, everybody is watching the recommendations of the Cyber Solarium Commission and waiting to see which of those might be included in the forthcoming NDAA. Supply chain issues have been around and there's been a lot of activity going on with them really for the past two years. Um, as with other issues, and the Cyber Solarium Commission has brought them to a head, um, I think brought some focus on those issues. And certainly the advancement of legislation um, surrounding supply chain will be very interesting to see. Um, there's been quite a lot of activity, including legislative activity relating to supply chain. Uh, so it will be interesting to see which of the Cyber Solarium Commission recommendations could get advanced. Do you think that the, that the supply chain is at as great a risk as it seems the, the commission believes? It, it strikes me that the they're really sending up fireworks, sounding the alarm that this is a huge problem. Do you see it as, as, as easy for me to say, do you see it as as big a problem as the commission does, Catherine? The commission is not the only body um, to have pointed out severe concerns about the supply chain and the integrity of our supply chain, particularly as it concerns two things, uh, our federal agencies, the Department of Defense, and also our 5G infrastructure. Um, these have been two threads of strong conversation about supply chain. Um, as, as long ago as 2017, there was legislation passed that created the FASC, the Federal Acquisition Supply Chain Council. The work of that council is underway. Um, they are still getting air under their wings, so to speak. Um, there have been several others. There was an EO uh, in 2019. Lots and lots of activity. Um, I, you know, uh, I, it's, I don't want to say that concern over supply chain is exaggerated, uh, but there there are reasons. Um, probably, you know, reasons that we're not and I'm not necessarily privy to that have to do with intelligence relating to the trustworthiness of these particular products. As you recall, in 2018, there was a provision in the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act that prohibited specific Chinese products, um, products manufactured by Chinese companies. And uh, and then yet again, another prohibition in, in subsequent legislation. So um, I, I think there's reason to believe that there is significant concern about the integrity of some of these products. Uh, one of the things that we do need to keep in mind when we're thinking about supply chain security is that it really the onus cannot be completely placed on methods whereby we can ensure manufacturers can produce perfectly secure products um, or even certification regimes where we could certify that those products are 100% free of vulnerability or compromise. Um, and that points the focus more on the users of those devices. 
you know, we work with the federal agencies in programs like Comply to Connect and Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation that are giving these agencies the tools to con continuously monitor uh, the behavior and posture and status changing of all of these devices, Windows devices, IoT devices, networking infrastructure. Um, and this aspect, i.e. what users can do to mitigate the risk of these devices, we believe is equally as important as trying to focus on uh, improving the quality of that supply chain. You used, uh, you talked about the National Defense Authorization Act earlier. I mentioned it in the, in the introduction. Why is that the most logical place to address some of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission's recommendations, Catherine? That's a great question. Um, well, you know, the, the Armed Services Committees over the past several years have really offered tremendous leadership on and interest in the topic of cybersecurity. So I find that uh, both the members and the staff on those committees have are, are experts and they have a strong interest, um, not only in the cybersecurity of the Department of Defense, um, in the continuity of the Department of Defense's mission, um, but of course also have a stake in you know broader continuity of operations of our economy. Um, so there's a lot of resident expertise in those committees. Also, we we also know that those bills are very likely to pass. So in congressional speak, uh, we say that you know that that there's a vehicle for passage of um, of provisions on the NDAA. Also appropriations bills, but as you're familiar, it's um, it's harder to attach items uh, that legislate to appropriations bills. We have about 30 seconds left, Catherine. What will you watch as all of this unfolds? Is it just a matter of which recommendations the uh, committees decide to take up or there is something else that you're gonna pay attention to? I think what's very important, um, not only with Cyber Solarium's recommendations, but also if you recall, there was the NSTAC moonshot report, which I was involved in, a board member from our company, uh, David DeWalt, is on the NSTAC. So really what's important about these is that they're not just seen as one-time efforts. Um, the efforts to enact the recommendations of the CSC will, will move um, forward long beyond the NDAA, which may carry a few priority provisions. Um, I expect that they will, although we don't know which ones. Um, so really it's to ensure that these efforts are ongoing and that this idea of a whole of nation approach um, to our collective cybersecurity is not just something we're going to accomplish in a few months this spring. Catherine, thanks very much for coming on. Appreciate your insight. Sure. Thanks. Great to see you. Up next, making the move to zero trust security. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the technology that could help the Pentagon stay secure in the cloud. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. back. Google's the winner of a contract to help the Defense Department move to zero trust security. The company will build a multi-cloud security gateway for the Pentagon. Ari Schwartz is managing director of cybersecurity services at Venable, former special assistant to the president and senior director for cybersecurity. Ari, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What is a security gateway? What is this that Google's building for DOD? So cloud security gateway, sometimes people call also call them cloud access security brokers. Um, and the, really the goal is to 
have something that stands between the users at the at the one end and the, the cloud access point, right? So you have uh, um, a way to put your policies and your procedures into place, no matter what the clouds uh, cloud that you're that you're coming in through, and uh, what traffic's coming in and who it's going to. Uh, and give the security teams visibility into that traffic, uh, even though it's in the cloud. What does this say about the broader cloud strategy, if anything, uh, that the Defense Department will employ, Ari? Because if it, th this solicitation specifically said a multi-cloud environment, obviously cloud is a touch point uh, inside the Pentagon and for the vendor community outside the Pentagon. Can we read anything into the fact that this security gateway will exist? Well, we have heard that there is this move towards using more cloud um, and it coming from different in different ways. So, uh, you know, we I think we can expect to see that, and this is part of that plan. Uh, it's just a pilot project, but um, I think it's a, a first step in trying to make sure that they have a grasp on the different cloud, the different cloud projects that come to come in the future. There's a confluence of concepts here too. The, the multi-cloud environment is one, zero trust security that I referred to is another. Um, th this is a big statement that the Pentagon is moving towards zero trust, it sends a big message to the civilian agencies, I imagine. Oh yeah, I mean, people have been talking about zero trust when you go to conferences uh, and, and the, yeah, the booths, everyone has zero trust up on the wall, on their wall. I mean, zero trust has, has come to uh, be synonymous with what the future of cybersecurity. And like cybersecurity, I mean, it's not really a, um, an, a, a destination, right? It's, it is a, you can't just get there and then you're at zero trust, right? It's going to be something that's ongoing and it means a lot of different pieces. You can't just buy a piece of equipment and then you're at zero trust, right? You need to have multi-factor authentication. You need to have this cloud security gateways, cloud CASB. Uh, implementation, you need to have um, uh, encryption, uh, uh, full, full encryption, data loss prevention, right? All the tools that make make it so that you're, uh, you can have some sense of what's going on in your network and that you're actually securing what's in the network and not just the borders around the network. What would be the steps that you would anticipate seeing this pilot project take, Ari? Well, I, I mean, I, I think that uh, you'll have a few different um, cloud environments connect in through this, and uh, you'll have uh, we'll have to see the the kind of testing of whether that works or not, and how what kind of controls they can put on it, and what kind of visibility they can get inside the cloud, and then we'll have a better sense as to whether this can work um, uh, at, at a broader scale. If I'm watching this from another agency. What do I want to pay attention to? What do I want to see if it works, whatever it is, during the course of this pilot? And what should I be asking cyber pros inside the Defense Department how this is going, how it might apply to something I do at my agency? Well, I think different agencies are in different positions and they're going to have different focuses. Um, and in some ways it's good to see it at DOD because you have such a broad scale. Uh, but then again, it's also more difficult because they're going to have they're going to be more advanced in certain things that they do, and they're going to be behind in other things that they do. So I think that you're going to have to uh, at, for for the agencies, you're going to have to think about your own place where you are, what policies and procedures you're going to have the most trouble with uh, moving more and more to the cloud, uh, and how you get visibility into those procedures, et cetera, and how them, how to fit this together. I mentioned that there's a confluence of things going on here: zero trust, the multi-cloud environment. The other one that jumped out at me is that DIU did this through another transaction authority. Does that mean anything in 
methodology, in the kind of technology DIU was looking at, any of that? Well, there's lots of reasons that those things happen, as you know, right? Uh, can, uh, so I, I don't know enough about the specifics here to speculate on exactly uh, wh why they took that approach. Um, but uh, it, it, there could be a lot of reasons uh, why that happened that way. What do you think the most important thing out of this is from a security perspective that people should be paying attention to, Ari? What will the department gain if this pilot project works the way that it wants it to that it didn't, the, what capability will it have that it didn't have before this pilot began? I do think that that visibility is really the key, right? As um, the one, you know, we always, there's there's this this kind of uh, fright, frightening attitude from security professionals moving things to the cloud. And then there's also this kind of excitement about moving to the cloud from security professionals too. Uh, and, and the reason for that is, is because there's this fear of law, total loss of visibility, of total loss of the way that they do things today. But then on the other hand, there's also the ability, if, if something like this works, right? If you can use the gateway in the right way and use the brokers in the right way, then you can gain a whole bunch of new visibility that you've never had before and a whole bunch of new control that gets you really does get you to more towards that zero trust. Uh, so, so really, the goal is, uh, you know, are, what are we seeing that's new? What and how do we go about making sure that we have the right policies in place to get there? Ari Schwartz, great insight as always, my friend. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts. Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.